Good day, everyone. I'm Michael Morgan, host of the 2023 Alzheimer's World Summit. And it's my great pleasure and honor to have with me today, Dr. Dale Bredesen, MD. He's the author of The End of Alzheimer's, the first program to prevent and reverse cognitive decline. And also uh, his newest book, The First Survivors of Alzheimer's, How Patients Recovered Life and Hope in Their Own Words. And, are, and he's really been a leading authority on research to prevent and reverse Alzheimer's disease. He spent the last 15 years understanding the mechanics and biochemistry of Alzheimer's. He's a world leader in helping to define how this disease can be identified, prevented, and addressed, uh, as well as being graduate of the Duke University School of Medicine and a professor at UCLA, UCLA professor of uh, neurology, uh, and actually many other accomplishments and uh, pioneering efforts that he's uh, been able to undertake in, in the last 15 to 20 years. So. Dr. Bredesen, again, uh, thank you again for being at the 2023 Alzheimer's World Summit. Thanks for having me, Michael. So I wanted to start, if it's okay, with a little bit of a story. You know, your book, The First Survivors of Alzheimer's, and I know this has been a continuum uh, for you, but um, what what were some of the things in common that you found with your patients? And maybe were there, were there some things that were uh, uh, different, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's a great point. So one of the things, so as far as people who improved, and in our trial, 84% of the people improved, but there are clearly always people who don't improve. Uh, and the ones that we found that improved had in common um, that were, number one, they continued to work to continue to optimize things. So when you look at what actually drives the degenerative process that we refer to as Alzheimer's disease, it's really around two major items. It's around the energetics. So whether it's not enough blood flow or not enough oxygen saturation or mitochondrial function or trophic activity or ketone levels, any of these things, this is all about energetic support for the brain. Um, and of course, stress comes into play there as well. The other piece of it is inflammation. So it's the innate immune system and it looks like the amyloid that has been vilified in this disease is really a part of the innate immune system's memory. And as Dr. Alexei Karakin, one of my colleagues has pointed out, the innate immune system's memory lives in three sites, in the bone marrow, it lives in the endothelial cells, which is why we do see people who have changed clotting and microthrombi and things like that with Alzheimer's, as well as we see it with COVID, that's an, a, a common feature of COVID as well. Uh, and then the third place it lives is in the tissue macrophages, which in the brain, those are the microglia. And of course, all sorts of abnormalities in microglia are found in Alzheimer's disease. And in general, they are in a more pro-inflammatory state. So these are the two things. And you really have a, uh, a kind of a mismatch here. You have supply, you have demand. And in Alzheimer's disease, the supply is not quite good enough and the demand is a bit too high. And you do that for years. And that's what leads to this uh, this reduction in size. So what the patients had in common, number one, to continue to work and to continue to optimize those things. And as a, a simple example, we had one recently who actually wrote her story in The First Survivors, Sally, wonderful professor uh, who actually did very well. She very well documented Alzheimer's disease at the MCI stage, which is the third of four stages, mild cognitive impairment. She Her MOCA score had dropped to 24. That's out of 30, but it is significant, especially for someone who has advanced education. Uh, it was quite low for her. 
uh, and she actually had an amyloid uh, PET scan that was positive. She is ApoE4 positive, uh, which is the, the co most common genetic risk factor. And she actually went on a drug trial uh, for an anti-amyloid antibody, which made her worse instead of better. So she improved and she kept, kept with it, uh, improved from 24 to a perfect 30, did very, very well uh, for six years. And then she started having problems again. Well, it turned out that she, when we looked further, number one, she had had undiagnosed sleep apnea. So that was then addressed. And then number two, she had had new exposure to mycotoxins, to these toxins made by mold. Those were also targeted with treatment. And once again, she came right back up and did very, very well. So that's one thing that people uh, have in common. And another thing is to work with health coaches and, uh, and experienced physicians who understand what they're looking for. If you've got a problem and it's not getting fixed, you may be missing to identify something that's critical for cognitive decline. And you gotta stick with it and find out, you know, is this oral microbiome related? Is it sleep apnea? Is it leaky gut? Is it, is it a problem with, with, uh, with the gut lining? Um, is it sensitivities uh, and autoimmune uh, situation? You know, what is it that is continuing to drive this mismatch and this supply demand, this, which is essentially a network insufficiency in the brain? So, so those are the things that we see that are that are similar from person to person. And, and I should add, you know, not having families that are saying, well, I just don't believe it. I don't believe it. Uh, people that are working with them. The differences we see are in the presentations. And it is striking. Um, there's kind of a typical presentation of people in their 40s and 50s. And, and what, by the way, when I was training in neurology, which was way back in the early 80s, uh, we never saw people in the 40s and 50s with Alzheimer's. Now it's one of the most common things we see. And indeed, epidemiological study from a couple of years showed it's the area where there's been the greatest increase is in younger people with Alzheimer's disease. And so those are people that when we see typically have a more of a non-amnestic presentation, often problems with uh, executive function planning, calculations, spatial problems, things like that. And they often have toxin exposures that you have to find and eradicate. Then we see people more in their 60s who are, it's more the typical, the, the guy like you and me, or who's maybe got some inflammation going on, maybe got some metabolic syndrome, a high HSCRP, a high HOMA IR from insulin resistance. Um, and we see that as a, as a presentation more in the 60s and even into the late 60s. And then we see another type uh, in, this, in the 70s where someone is really more about atrophic presentation, uh, someone who's just very low on hormones and often on vitamin D and vitamin B12 as well, where they just don't have the support for that network. So these are very different people, very different looks at the way they present, very different outcomes. The good news is all three of them can do just fine if you identify the right things and address those things. And we've seen it again and again and again. You brought out a network of very fascinating things I wanna to touch on. One is that, maybe I hadn't heard this before, but in terms of the continuum of aging, considering that we're an environment where there's so many more environmental insults than there's been before. Yeah. Like toxins in our summit, we've interviewed a lot more people that are, this wasn't like even a thing a few years ago. People are talking right. about toxic exposures in a different way. And it's interesting 
that anywhere from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s, the presentations are different. Yes. So it seems like part of it is environmental stressors may be a factor that wasn't there before, or maybe people weren't looking for it. I don't know in terms of that. So that's just very interesting. Um, and my second question you've touched on is one common denominator seems to be uh, an inflammatory process. Yes. And I want to ask one thing, but first I want to ask, I'm just fascinated. How did you come up with this observation that the amyloid was really vilified? It's not really the bad guy, but maybe a reaction to what was your process in identifying and thinking and coming to that conclusion? Yeah, that's a great point. Of course, people were just focused on this idea that, you know, amyloid collects in the brains. And to be fair, you know, you know from the genetics, if you have a mutation that makes it so that you make a lot more amyloid, you do get Alzheimer's. So it sounds like, okay, connect the dots. It must be the bad guy. Right. Well, it could be the origin or it could be a mediator. So we've been looking, we were looking in the lab for years at the signaling. So we're trying to understand what is the basic driver of this neurodegenerative process. I used to go to meetings and saying, well, you know, we want to understand what is Alzheimer's. And people would look at me like, well, what does that mean? Well, so we wanted to understand the fundamental nature of this problem. And so we were studying the signaling of the parent. So amyloid comes from amyloid precursor protein, APP, right. which is a type one membrane protein. So the beginning of the protein, the amino terminus is outside the cell and the end of the protein, the carboxy terminus is inside the cell. So it sticks through the membrane, especially in neurons and especially at synapses. So it's kind of like this sitting there and most of it is outside the cell and a little bit is inside the cell. And what's really fascinating about that is that there are many different biochemical events that will trigger this to be cut. And interestingly, it's cut in one of two alternative ways. And what we found is when things are good, if you are binding to a trophic ligand like Netrin-1, things are good. Uh, you've got enough estrogen around, you've got enough testosterone, you've got enough vitamin D, things are good. You've got an appropriate uh, extracellular matrix, all of these things. Then this molecule says, okay, things are good. I'm going to get cut at a single site, which is the alpha site. I make two peptides, SAPP alpha outside the cell, alpha CTF inside the cell, C-terminal fragment as the CTF goes. So basically saying things are good. We're going to grow and maintain. We're going to make and synapses and maintain synapses. It's essentially saying you're going to learn new things and keep those memories. That same receptor, when things are bad, when you have inflammation, when you have not enough trophic support, not enough brain-derived neurotrophic factor, for example, not enough vitamin D, uh, inflammation, all these things, what happens is it now goes into a protective mode. And this is very much, by the way, very much like what happened to our country. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to when the pandemic, you know, things are building, things are growing, okay, then early 2020, uh, there's this pandemic, SARS-CoV-2. We start the, here is the beginning of COVID-19. And everyone tells us what? Shelter in place, socially distance, don't go to work, say all these things. And so the country downsizes. We go into a recession. And so now people are pulling back. And this is exactly what your brain is doing. You're going from a mode where you're saying things are good. We're going to grow and maintain good neuroplasticity to no 
things are bad and we're now going to pull back. We're actually going to reduce the number of synapses. We're going to live in a smaller brain, as it were, but we're going to make this stuff that's killing the invaders. And that's what the amyloid is. It is an antimicrobial peptide. And this was published several years ago by two professors from Harvard, Robert Moyer and Rudy Tanzi. And this fits with the model that we developed beautifully. So it says when things are bad, you are going to downsize. You are going to now use your resources to address the various insults. And interestingly, this also is a metal binding peptide. Um, it has antiviral effects. It has antibacterial effects, antispirochete effects, antifungal effects. So we realize that you have to look at this differently. This is not something that is there to try to uh, give you Alzheimer's. It is a normal part of your brain's defense system, specifically part of your innate immune system's memory process because it is a long-lived peptide that is there to fight these things. And so what we wanna do then is understand why it is for each person. When, when we see them with cognitive decline, we know they're on the wrong side of that APP signaling. So we wanna then understand why is that? We wanna do everything possible to move them back over to the positive APP signaling of neuroplasticity so that they can make and keep synapses. And that typically involves improving the energetics and reducing the inflammation and finding what's causing it. Is it your oral microbiome? Is it herpes simplex? Is it P. gingivalis? Is it a leaky gut? Is it a tick-borne infection? There are all sorts of chronic infections that we all are dealing with. And unfortunately, they can contribute to cognitive decline. So we must find them and remove them. And that's really key. One of the things you've really pioneered is the idea that this is a multifactorial phenomenon. It's just not one thing, right. not as we say a one thing. And I know we could go on about pharmaceutical intervention. We can come back to that for, in a moment, but this is a little aside, but one thing that Dr. Elpledger, my mentor, you know, she has to be touched on 20 years ago. He was talking about the idea that the microglia the localized patrolman in the brain could get exhausted. They could yep. get overwhelmed and then they pull in support from outside and the immune system starts to create its own problematic uh, situation. And the one thing I wanted to get your comment on, this is fairly new in science is University of Rochester <clears throat> came out with an observation just in this last uh, January. And they found and located a layer called, I think it's called the SLYM layer, the subarachnoid-like layer that's in yeah. the middle of the subarachnoid space that seems to be a mediator, and no one had discovered it or imaged it before, that seemed to have to do with the mediation of immune system factors. I just wondered, in that context, if you maybe had any comments about that. Yeah, you know, I think that there are going to be so many of these things where it's all about how does the brain and its own system with microglia relate to the rest of the body. We know that there is there is such amazing interaction. And let me give you one example. There was an amazing paper uh, published a couple of years ago where a group wanted to understand, okay, we, we know that the blood-brain barrier is supposed to exclude lots of uh, problems. We're going to ask what happens when you put candida into the bloodstream? Can the blood-brain barrier exclude it for months? Can it exclude it for weeks? can it exclude it for days? And the answer was, 
only it only excluded the candidate for a few minutes. Uh-huh. So it's, um, so the and what happened was the candidate entered the brain and these were these were rodent studies and elicited an immune response that looked like the beginning of Alzheimer's. So again, it is about this. I have no doubt that the layer you're de- you're describing uh, re- uh, related to the subarachnoid space, uh, you know, is going to be another one of these critical interactions. You know, it's been very interesting to me to see if you look at MS versus Alzheimer's. So with MS, we know that you know you have a response, and if if the recent papers uh, are, are to be believed, then usually this is to Epstein-Barr virus. I think there's no question that sometimes it is. The question is how many, what percentage of cases of MS are going to be related to autoimmunity, uh, related to a response to Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, that remains to be determined. But clearly in some cases there is. Uh, and the response uh, will cross-react with a molecule called GlielCam. And this is some very mm. interesting research that came out of Stanford. Uh, and so this is a fascinating phenomenon where you can see that the adaptive immune system is, is responding, but it's responding in such a way that you have autoimmunity. With Alzheimer's, it's the same idea, except it's not so much about the adaptive system. It's really about the innate immune system responding to these insults in such a way that you now are making amyloid. You're making a a, an immune-related defense system. And of course, people have also looked at various cytokines. So we see the idea of removing amyloid, for example, um, essentially like removing a cytokine. Now, that can be a problem if you've got ongoing insults, but under certain circumstances, yeah, it could be helpful. You're, you're removing a mediator. But what you really want to do is to go upstream and understand why is it there? What were you responding to originally? What was the problem? And then eradicate that. It may have been a tick-borne uh, illness. You know, it may have been Ehrlichia or Babesia or Bartonella. Um, it may have been herpes simplex. It may have been HHV6A. It may have been a chronic sinusitis. Whatever it is, you need to ferret that out and you need to address that in order to get the best outcomes. It's interesting that... If I have this right, there could be a little bit of a conflict between the adaptive and the innate immune system. There are a little bit of cross purposes where ideally they're not doing that, of course. Right. So that's interesting as a little dynamic that's set up. Um, and I think Dr. Elfledger talked about that too long ago. He said, well, look, there is an, a, there is a, an adaptive response and the immune system can get so confused. It's like it's attacking itself, almost right. like an autoimmune response over time. Right. We've spoken about the pro-inflammatory cytokines being involved in that as well. Um, <clears throat> a couple of uh, a couple of points that diverge from that as well. One is I'll skip to this point and, and come back to uh, the keto diet. But mm-hmm. when you're looking at clearing the system, um, you said uh, I read you, you wrote once that, for example, when you're talking about antibodies it might make more sense to remove toxins after the various insults have been removed and the metabolism has been optimized. And I'm wondering in your process, we'll talk a little bit more, um, in your protocol, where do you think other modalities, maybe like cranial cycle or manual therapy might be most effective in clearing the toxins at the beginning, middle and end or in the whole continuum of where, if that makes sense. Just curious about that. 
Yeah, I think at the beginning, you really want to see, you know, when, when we see someone who's coming in with cognitive decline, I consider that an energetic emergency. Because what happens is, as you know, you can only metabolize two substrates in the brain. It's glucose, it's ketones. And so normally when things are good, you're going back and forth. You know, you, you have some time of fasting, you go to bed and all night, now you're actually metabolizing some ketones. You then have food, you're metabolizing glucose and you go back and forth. The problem is with people who have cognitive decline, they've lost both of those. They typically lose the ability to metabolize the glucose effectively because they develop insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. But then interestingly, because the insulin is now high, it prevents you from making ketones. So you lose both of these and you really are in a, in an energetic emergency. So this is why just giving exogenous ketones as uh, professor Stephen Kinane uh, did um, is actually a very helpful way to go uh, at least to get started. So what I was saying about the, the antibodies, the anti-amyloid is in a perfect world, what I'd like to see is let's fix all the things that are driving the problem Let's get people to be resilient. Let's get them to have optimal hormone balance, to get them to have a non-inflammatory state. Then once they're doing well and they're not exposed to these various inflammagens and pathogens, now what you wanna do is do small amounts of these anti-amyloid antibodies and slowly remove the amyloid that has collected there typically over 20 years. Mm -hmm. what's, what's happening now in the, in the trials and in the use of these drugs, they ignore everything that causes it, and they just go in with massive amounts of these antibodies and try to rip out the amyloid. Well, the amyloid is sitting there, and it's, for one of the things, it's sitting in vessels. Um, it is actually patching vessels. That's one of its jobs. So you pull that out and you get microhemorrhage. And so they do get microhemorrhage. They get brain swelling. Um, several people have died from these drugs. So I think that the, the drugs could be very valuable, but I think that they're being used in a suboptimal way. Let's get rid of the things that are causing the problem. And now let's introduce them slowly and just help to remove. Now, currently what we're doing to re reduce that amyloid, there are other agents like curcumin uh, interacts with amyloid. Uh, cat's claw is another good one. Um, just removing the pro-inflammatory state um, that helps you to, to slowly now reduce your amyloid burden. So, but I do think, you know, these, these antibodies, again, used in the right amounts at the right time could be valuable. Now, these other ones that you're talking about, like craniosacral therapy, it depends on their mechanism of action. So if you've got something that, that the mechanism of action is helping to detox, you know, that can be reduced anytime. You do have to be, as you know, a little bit careful about too rapid detox early on. Right. Uh, people are not ready for that. And as, as Dr. Neil Nathan has pointed out, if you go too fast at the beginning, people will actually go backwards. They'll actually do worse instead of better. So you need to kind of ease this stuff out and do it in a way that you're not reintroducing harm. Right. Well, thanks for that. Thank you. And as part of the metabolic process, you know, our friend uh, Heather Sanderson, she's had some success with the application of the keto diet. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Speak a little bit about why you think that's been so effective in recovering memory. Yes. So so the diet that we introduced is called KetoFlex 12-3. Uh, and, you know, Heather has, has uh, you know, worked, we've worked with Heather in the past and love what she's doing. Very excited about Marama, uh, which is really the first 
the first assisted living facility to use our protocol, and she's getting wonderful results. And by the way, we published a trial last year uh, in which 84% of people actually improve their cognition. That's freely available online, Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Um, Heather did a similar trial and just published that recently, as you may know, also in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, and she got very similar results. So, you know, we're seeing again and again, people doing the right things are getting people to improve. And it's important to point out the drugs don't give you a long-term improvement and they don't, they give you a short-term, if anything, and they don't, if you're using the antibodies, they don't make you improve. They don't even make you stabilize. They make you go downhill a little bit slower, 27% slower. And as many have pointed out, it's really not a clinically meaningful result. So it's a, you really, it's hard to tell who's gotten them and who hasn't gotten them. So it's very important to point out these are minimal effects, whereas the protocol we use makes people better. And we've now seen people for over 10 years. Now you mentioned the keto diet, very important to point out. This is not your typical keto diet with a bunch of bacon and eggs and stuff like that. This is a plant rich, mildly ketogenic diet developed largely uh, by Julie G., uh, who is a, a patient who's done very well now for, for over 11 years, who actually started treating herself way back in 2012. Uh, also the founder of APOE4.info, a wonderful uh, free site for anyone who is APOE4 positive, who's interested in what to do. And the vast majority of those people are on some version of the protocol we developed. So a lot of people will say, well, what do I do about this? Uh, how do I, you know, how do I get all the right things? How do I make sure they're organic? How do I make sure that uh, that that I'm not getting anything that's the wrong thing? And it's simple. So Julie worked, uh, and and my wife, Dr. Aida Lachine, uh, worked with uh, with worked with uh, Nutrition for Longevity N4L. Um, and uh, has developed a wonderful, you, you can get this online, you can actually choose your own, whether you want more on the fish side, you want more on the vegetable side, what it is you want, a Keto Flex 12-3 diet that's delivered to your home. So it makes it very easy. Uh, and I've, I've uh, in, enjoyed them myself. Uh, they're wonderful. They help me to get into ketosis. Uh, and they are delicious. So I really give huge credit to Nutrition for Longevity, Jennifer Maynard and her, and her whole group, and Walter Longo, who's one of the founders, along with Jennifer, um, and to Julie and Aida for the tremendous work that they did over months and months, continuing to optimize this. Uh, and so this is something that's easy for people to do. I would also mention one other thing for anyone who is 40 or over, please get a cognoscopy. Just like we all know, when you turn 50, you get a colonoscopy. If you're 40 or over, please get a cognoscopy. It's easy to do. You can do it online, mycognoscopy.com. Very simple. You get the appropriate testing, appropriate cognitive testing. Uh, and we, one of the things that, you, as you know, just came out a couple of days ago uh, was a lot of interest in this work from University of Michigan showing that if you are exposed to air pollution, you have an increased risk for cognitive decline. And what they looked at was specifically what types of air pollution are the worst. And it turns out that exposure to fires, and boy, uh, with the fires from Canada, lots of people on the East Coast exposed, fires in California uh, fortunately haven't been as bad this year, 
but we've had them in the past. Anytime you're exposed to those things, you are increasing your risk for cognitive decline. So you wanna make sure you have your HEPA filter, that you are in an appropriate detoxing diet like KetoFlex 12-3. Um, that you've got your N95. If you're if you're in these, uh, you know, if you're anywhere near these fires and the smoke is there, close up the house, get the HEPA filters running, reduce your risk for cognitive decline for the future. Yeah, I know. A few months ago, a couple months ago, I drove home from Chicago to Iowa, and the mm -hmm. whole state of Illinois had it's. It was like a fog. You could yeah. see it. So yeah. one can only imagine what particulates. That's not helping. That's yep. probably going to create an inflammatory response as well. No question. That is creating an inflammatory response. And of course, altering things like your oxygen saturation, your carbon dioxide level, your carbon monoxide level, uh, various other you know, acrolines and, and various, uh, uh, various gases um, that are associated with incomplete combustion. So you really do get exposed to, unfortunately, a whole panoply uh, of things that can increase cognitive decline when you're exposed to these. And I should mention the second thing that came in after uh, the fires was agriculture related pollution. Huh. So another one to be concerned about. And it was interesting that both of those were more than even coal burning. Uh, and then of course there's traffic and sort of you know standard car related uh, pollution. So a lot of things, anything that's causing air pollution does increase your risk. So you wanna again, look for detox and look for getting out of that severe pollution. Well, so it, we're getting to the point perhaps where uh, environmental concerns are not quite separate from cognitive yeah. and memory. They're, they're much more in a continuum that we yep. are even aware of than before, which is, I think everyone's kind of getting the message, but it's maybe a more of an increased sense of urgency. Um, and I wanted to talk just a little bit about this idea that you and I have both been fascinated for years about of slowing, stopping, and even reversing. And you yeah. touched on this when we began, kind of like, what's been your observation of why it is that some people can maybe slow the progression, some stop, maybe even some reverse? Are there some variables that that dictate that as much? I'm just wondering what your observation has been about that over the years. You know, such a good point, uh, and because it's interesting to me. We've been inculcated with this idea that it's impossible to reverse cognitive decline. Right. And so even people where I've had an interview where I presented our data, where we show that people actually improved, uh, we've had people go from MOCA scores of 18 to 30, perfect 30s. So just striking improvement. And we've had others, you know, go from 23 to 25, not such a huge improvement, but it's an improvement. Oh, yeah. It's something you don't see with the uh, antibodies, for example. And yet these people will then go on on their own and they'll say, yeah, you know, someday we might see some reversal, but it's not yet possible. No, it's here. We published it first in 2014. And these are patients I began to see in 2012. But it's hard for people to kind of embrace that idea. One researcher said, no, it's impossible to reverse cognitive decline in Alzheimer's. No, it's not. We've shown it again and again. Now, we don't know uh, what's happening with the pathology. We can get some ideas. We do know that the MRIs in, so in some of these people where we've checked their MRIs actually improve. They improve their volumetrics. You actually improve the size of your hippocampus. We've seen people, and there was a recent, a, a wonderful result, a woman who improved her parietal lobe 
her, her parietal lobe percentile in terms of volumetrics from mm. less than the first percentile to the 22nd percentile, just dramatic improvements. She also had dramatic improvements in her temporal lobe volume. So, you know, these things happen, uh, but the, the difference is when you have, when, when someone is going downhill, you've got a mismatch. And so there, you have to remember that there are kind of two separate things. One is what's driving the process. So the process may be driven so that you're doing this, going really fast downhill, or it may be that you're just mildly, um, and on the other hand, the actual symptoms you're dealing with are due to how much of the neural network is currently functioning. So how much so you can be in a stage where you're going down rapidly, but you've still got a pretty good functioning network where you're hmm. going to say, oh, this person's, you know, fairly mildly affected. Ah, but you may be advancing very rapidly. So you so you have to look at that. And so you have people where they're not advancing rapidly. You can alter that. Now they're going in the right direction. And actually, you see them improve pretty rapidly. We do see again and again certain things that are easier to improve. Yeah. Information, easier to address. Metabolic syndrome, easier to address. Glycotoxicity, prediabetes. Those are all easier to address. Uh, some of the mild toxins. But on the other hand, some of the things where you've got toxic exposure for decades and people have had cognitive decline for five, 10 years, that is much harder because you're dealing now starting at a lower level uh, with fewer synapses to start with. And you're going to have to actually add to those. And so it may take stem cells. It's going to be really important to remove all the things that are driving this down. And we, we do see is even people in relatively later stages, they can, if they do the right things, they can be completely stable. Now we just have to add, okay, what is it gonna to take to improve that synaptic number? And as I say, it may take in some cases, stem cells, intranasal trophic factors, things like that. So a little bit different processes in terms of understanding what's driving it versus once we get rid of that, we go on the right direction, what we now can do to reestablish the synapses that are lost. You have to remember there are some that are not functioning just for chemical means, some ongoing inflammation, for example, a reduction in neurotransmitters. Uh, we have to get the, you know, you have to get the acetylcholine up to where it should be. But there are others that are not functioning that are actually structurally gone. And so that makes it much tougher. To kind of generalize, probably the earlier the intervention, the better. Yes. And then once someone has improved to whatever degree they are, you probably want some kind of a maintenance program to maintain their viability. If that makes sense. And if you now have secondary decline, which we do see people improve as I'm the one, the Sally that I mentioned earlier, she had this secondary decline after six years. Okay. Get, you know, get on that maintenance program, find out what's causing it. Let's prevent that secondary decline. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say Alzheimer's is now, optional. And, and again, people can't believe that. But the reality is, if everybody would get on active prevention or earliest reversal and not wait, just as well, look, well, look what happened with pap smears. Before pap smears, people would come in with late stage cervical cancer. Once pap smears were available and people would get them annually, 
wow, you could really reduce the risk of getting and getting severe life-threatening cervical cancer. We're in the same situation now with Alzheimer's disease. If everybody would get evaluated, see what's going on, and then get on active prevention, or if they're already beginning to have symptoms, don't wait. As you indicated, the problem is when people wait and wait and wait and wait until they're basically ready for a nursing home and then say, okay, you know, let's bring this back to normal. Um, we have seen people go from, as I said, 18 to a perfect 30. We've seen people go from zero, which is end stage Alzheimer's, to nine. We've never seen anyone go from zero to 30. We don't yet know what it will take to take someone in that end stage and bring them back to perfect. I'm I'm very interested in what is you know what can we do to help to make this better and better. So the best thing, please come in early or come in be better yet for prevention. And mm -hmm. let's make sure that nobody has to worry about this problem. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about some of your newest research and studies, because I know that some are ongoing right at the moment. Absolutely, thank you so much. So there's a lot going on. I'm just finishing up a paper on long-term uh, positive outcomes. So very excited about that. People who've improved uh, over 10 years and maintain their improvement. This is not what you see with pharmacotherapy. Um, in the long run, of course, I think these are going to come together. They're going to be targeted drugs plus personalized precision medicine protocols. That's what, what we've published um, to get best outcomes and keep best outcomes. Second thing is we have now have just started uh, a new clinical trial. This is a randomized controlled trial. This is at six sites. I'm really uh, honored to be working with six absolutely outstanding functional medicine physicians. This is uh, Dr. Christine Burke in Sacramento, uh, Dr. Kat Toops in the East Bay, Dr. Anne Hathaway uh, in, uh, in San Rafael, uh, and then Dr. Nate Bergman uh, in Cleveland, Dr. Uh, David Hasse, um, who is uh, in Nashville, and then Dr. Craig Tanio, who is in Hollywood, Florida. Very excited about this uh, work, and this is just getting rolling on this trial. And then also very excited about the Pacific Neuroscience Institute. Um, there is a brain health center there that was initiated and is run by Dr. David Merrill, um, who is doing a version of our protocol as well. And so uh, I'll be working with, uh, with Dr. Merrill uh, to set up uh, a FIRST, which is a precision medicine program for neurodegenerative disease. This will be at Pacific Neuroscience Institute at their brain health center. Very excited about that. And that should be coming online within the next few months. As I mentioned earlier, um, there's also the nutrition for longevity so that we can get more people to do the right thing uh, for their uh, for their diets and nutrition uh, and get better outcomes. Again, this is not about bacon and eggs. Uh, this is about a plant-rich, mildly ketogenic diet, high in phytonutrients, high in fiber, great for detox, and great for metabolic flexibility, which is a critical goal for getting best outcomes for cognition. Excellent. And I might mention Dr. Hasse is one of our speakers at the summit, too. Fascinating interview okay. we had with him. Um, this is really great. Thank you. That's very encouraging, very exciting. So we want to track that to see how all that's unfolding. Uh, very good. Uh, what do you think, I know you've spoken about this a bit, what do you think in the next 10 or 20 years or now, the treatment of Alzheimer's is gonna look like? Yeah, this is a great point. First of all, I think that it will become 
optional, which is what we're doing right now. I think that just as people go in, you know, we all understand pre-diabetes, you know, it's a good, good model. Look what happened with diabetes. Uh, it, it was only uh, when I was training, you go in and it's, you have diabetes or you don't have diabetes. In fact, some experts said there is no such thing as pre-diabetes, just diabetes or no diabetes. Well, that turned out to be wrong. So you have diabetes, you have pre-diabetes, you have insulin resistance, which is pre-pre-diabetes. So you can see you know, all of these complex chronic illnesses, and I include Alzheimer's there and other neurodegenerative diseases, you can see them coming if you know what to look for. There mm -hmm. are new blood tests where you can pick this up early. GFAP is a non-specific but very sensitive one, which will be coming online shortly. PTAL 181 is already online. You can already get this at a standard uh, lab tests. And then the other one is A beta 42 to 40 ratio. And actually Quest has just announced that one uh, is available. So I think the future is gonna be number one, people will look at this earlier. People have been afraid to know. No, you're gonna you're gonna get it when you you're gonna notice when you have pre 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 Alzheimer's, and you're not ever gonna get significant Alzheimer's. That's the first thing. Second thing is we will see more precision medicine protocols continuing to optimize recode, which was what we developed, and then you'll see it. Number three, you'll see it combined with the approach uh, with with targeted pharmaceuticals. The pharmaceuticals, I hope, will give up on this silly notion of we're going to take this very complex chronic illness and we're going to give one drug and we're going to hope that it has a minimal effect so we can sell billions and billions of dollars worth of this drug. That's clearly a suboptimal way to go. The drugs are going to be helpful, but use them in the appropriate way. And then the next thing I think you're going to see is once someone, if someone does have late stage Alzheimer's, all of the children come in, everybody get on active prevention so that the, it, you'll end it with that particular uh, generation. And then finally, we're now taking this to other neurodegenerative diseases. It's a similar phenomenon, but it's different. Each one has its own unique biochemistry and genetics so that we'll see a great reduction in macular degeneration, in ALS, in frontotemporal dementia, in Lewy body disease. And by the way, the, the approach we use for Alzheimer's works quite well for Lewy body disease as well. Vascular dementia, all of these things, you're gonna be seeing reductions. And just as we've seen wonderful response from Dr. Terry Wall's protocol for multiple sclerosis, you know, I think we'll see these sorts of protocols developed for every one of these diseases. And that's the goal of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute's new program on precision medicine. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned that because in our uh, Longevity World Summit last year, we spoke and referred a lot to the hallmarks of aging. You know, a paper that was written around 2015 saying there are, there's a new insight into the biochemical and biochemical and biostructural dynamics that is going to change the whole conversation about longevity in the next 20 years. So, right. I think you're referring, you know, kind of referencing that. That's exciting what may be unfolding even through that. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that as well. Um, it's a good point, as you, as you indicated. I mean, there's a lot of interest in reprogramming, for example, with this idea, can you take a 45 or 50-year-old person and make them essentially biologically a 20 or 25-year-old person? Uh, coming from work from uh, Dr. David Sinclair, for example. Uh, I think it will be interesting. Um, there's actually a huge new company started up just to do that. We'll see. Uh, my argument would be, okay, 
young people are pretty resistant to these problems. Right. But unfortunately, you're still driving the process. So you're going to want to do both. And so my argument to people is, look, we everyone's now talking about, hey, I want to live to 140. Well, if you spend 70, if you spend half of your life in a nursing home with dementia, living right. to 140 is not such a great thing. So right. let's make sure that we prevent the neurodegenerative process. Now, on the website, we'll have information about how people can find out more about your programs. But yep. do you want to say anything briefly about how people can find out more about what you're doing and what you're up to? Sure, absolutely. And so, as you mentioned, there are three books, The End of Alzheimer's, The End of Alzheimer's Program, uh, and The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. Uh, and so people can look and you know, read this. You can also see it on Facebook, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Uh, we also, uh, Apollo Health uh, has a wonderful uh, website with uh, over a hundred different guides to support people uh, in reversing cognitive decline. So, you know, we were the first to, to publish reversal of cognitive decline in patients with Alzheimer's. And uh, please, you know, everyone, I would, I would urge everyone, please avoid this problem. This is a huge issue. Cognitive decline, about 15% of Americans, it's about 40 times as common as COVID in terms of the number of people who are currently living who will die this. We know that COVID is well over a million people, but in the United States, uh, about 45 million of us will die of Alzheimer's if we don't get on active prevention or early treatment. So I would uh, I would urge everyone, please make sure that you don't get this problem. And you can see it on you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Well, on that note, <laughs> thanks for that. Uh... Thanks for that caution. Thank you so much for all of the time you have spent decades in researching this and really looking deeply into the mechanisms of nature to find out what's exactly happening and how we can solve this. So Dr. Dale Bredesen, thank you for being with us again today. Great to talk to you, Michael.